So today's subject is one that um, I think some of you will find helpful, and quite frankly, others will probably struggle to stay engaged, all right? So how's that for an introduction? Does not just grab you and pull you in? Um, uh, the subject is one that's fascinating to me. I'm, I'm kind of interested in this sort of thing, but um, I have unusual taste, so I would admit that. So today, I don't want you to think of this really as a sermon with, you know, biting exhortations kind of thing. This is more like a teaching, uh, a time of instruction, so just picture us being in a big classroom. In the past 20 years or so, some skeptics have ramped up their attempts to undermine the Bible by casting doubts on what we call the integrity of the text. Now, we have always have had critics who claim that the Bible is full of myths, and others who claim that the Bible is full of contradictions, and those who scoff at the idea that the Bible is God's word, that it's revelation from him, inspired by him, and so on. But in more recent times, we've had to deal with yet another attack, that, and that is this, that the text itself has been compromised. And the objection goes something like this. Well, who can really say what the Bible today even is? For centuries... The scriptures were copied by hand. Countless mistakes have been made, not to mention intentional changes, all of which have altered the text significantly. And so we really don't have a clue on what the authors actually wrote. Right. Have anyone heard something like that? All right. So some people, even Christians, seem to have this impression that before the printing press, the process was so haphazard and uncontrolled that we can only hope that our modern-day Bibles aren't too corrupted. You know, we can only hope. It's like eating hot dogs. You know, I want to believe that they're okay to eat, but don't tell me what's in them. You know, it's kind of like that. I want to believe the Bible hasn't been compromised. So just don't tell me about the possibility of mistakes and discrepancies and changes. So on the surface, it looks like, though, there could be something to this argument. Up until the time of the printing press, around the year 1440 or so, the scriptures were copied by hand. The ancient manuscripts from that day that um, that still still the ancient manuscripts from that day that still exist, and these are mostly in museums and libraries, are handwritten copies of handwritten copies of handwritten copies, and so on. Now, I couldn't even copy something like that small letter of Second John, which is only 14 verses, without making a couple mistakes, much less the whole New Testament that contains around 8,000 verses. And apart from human error, one does have to wonder if there were times when the text was changed intentionally. Skeptics certainly like to apply, imply this, that there were those who had their own agendas and took the liberty to alter things on purpose, And how could we ever know? And this is where critics of the Bible like to plant seeds of doubt. And they fertilize and water that doubt by pointing out that we do not have the original writings. And so the whole thing does seem somewhat questionable. And so this is our subject for today. We could spend really a whole month on this, but we don't really need to. You and I actually don't need to be experts in this field. I'm certainly not an expert, but all of us should at least have some basic knowledge of the allegations and be equipped to provide a response. So as to answer others and to, uh, quite frankly, answer any doubts that we personally might have. We all want to read, study, 
teach, enjoy, and apply the scriptures, knowing that we don't have to unduly, knowing that we don't have to be unduly concerned about whether it is riddled with errors and man-made changes. Right? Correct. So, for our purposes today, to help things keep things simple, we will just limit our discussion to that of the New Testament, though. There are certainly similarities. The questions and issues take a slightly different path for the Old Testament. And we will not take time today to deal with matters related to translation. Um, It's a related question, but it's a different one. Translation, of course, deals with the converting of the Greek text into English. You know, the question is how accurate is the NIV or the ESV or the King James and so on. That's another discussion for another time. Today, our focus is on whether the Greek text itself that those translations use is reliable. Does everyone see the difference? Everyone tracking with me so far? All right. So, again, just to make sure we are all on the same page here, for this morning, we are concerned about about roughly a 1,400-year period before the printing press, when the scriptures were copied by hand thousands of times. We want to know, were mistakes ever made? If so, were those mistakes then duplicated in the next generation of copies, and so on? Did those mistakes ever get discovered and corrected? And if so, how were they able to determine that? And were any changes made intentionally? And ultimately, can we trust the Greek text that our New Testaments have been translated from? That's today's agenda. So maybe you never worried about any of this. Maybe I'm raising doubts now that are unhelpful. <laughs> um, you know, you, maybe you're one of those people like myself. You know, I just want to enjoy the hot dog. Please don't tell me what's in it. Um, so here is the crux of the issue. And you're going to have to help me if these slides don't advance. Did that come up? All right. Here's the crux of the issue. There exist today roughly 5,900 ancient Greek manuscripts consisting of either a complete copy of the New Testament or a part of it. 5,900. That's a lot. And these are just the ones that have been found. More are being added all the time with new discoveries. Um, to put things in perspective, only a fraction of these 5,900 manuscripts were available to the translators of the King James Bible that was published in the 1600s. There's there's just been a lot that's been added. And we expect that in the coming years that this collection of 5,900 will continue to grow. Now, when these copies are laid out on a giant table and compared side by side, well, as to be expected, there are some differences. The New Testament has roughly 138,000 words in 8,000 verses, right? 138,000 words in 8,000 verses. There's a lot of room for mistakes there, especially with this huge collection of 5,900 different documents. Critics of the Bible, blank, critics of the Bible claim that there are, listen to this number, critics of the Bible claim that there are 300,000 to 400,000 such mistakes, all right? That's a disturbing number. 300 to 400,000. Now, these figures are misleading, exaggerated, and quite frankly, they are less than truthful. First, the word, um, these numbers, first, these numbers are just estimates because no one has ever counted them. 
Secondly, mistake is actually too strong of a word because mistake implies something um, that shouldn't be implied here. Scholars actually prefer the word, prefer the word variance. Uh, for, for sure, variants include mistakes, but not every variant is a mistake. Thirdly, those who like to use these inflated numbers usually include, and this is important, an additional 19,300 manuscripts that have been translated into other languages before the printing press. And that raises the number from 5,900 to over 25,000, which significantly raises the potential for more variants, more differences. Right? Everyone following me so far? And fourth, the way they count these variants is itself questionable. For instance, follow with me. If one single word is misspelled and that misspelling is copied in a thousand manuscripts, it is counted as a thousand variants. <laughs> All right. Not one, but a thousand. And so, as you can see, all this should strike us as some sort of sleight of hand manipulation. And critics of the Bible, they like to do that sort of thing. So what I've learned is that scholars who deal with this, they don't all agree on what a variant is. They don't all agree on how to count them and even which manuscript should be included in that count. Are there a lot of variants? Yes, there are. We have to accept that. There are a lot. But most of them are relatively minor and easy to catch and easy to correct. You know, if I hand copied, follow with me on this exercise, if I hand copied those uh, 14 verses that make up the second that make up second John and handed it to you. Actually, I think it's 13 verses. Now I got to start the whole sermon all over. <laughs> if I hand copied those 13 verses that make up second John and handed it to you, chances are really high that you could catch mistakes that I made, even if you did not use your Bible to compare it to. Okay. Common mistakes would be that of accidentally missing a word in a sentence, misspellings, punctuation, you know, that sort of thing. We would not, however, expect me to find you. You would not, however, expect to find me substituting the name Jesus for Buddha. You know, that probably wouldn't happen. Or the word obedience for sin or joy for lust. And this is what critics seem to want to imply, that the variances bring to question the very message of the Bible. But that's just simply not the case. So when it comes down to it, I think you'll find this encouraging. Less than 1% of the New Testament is questionable. And none of those passages that are in, that are in question deal with any significant doctrine or Christian truth. Nothing substantial rises or falls upon any word or phrase or sentence that carries some uncertainty with it. And furthermore, when uncertainties do occur, they are fully disclosed in the footnotes. Nothing is hidden from the critical reader. The alternate reading is made available. If there's some doubt about whether uh, about something said in a particular verse, well, the footnote will provide the other possibility. You've seen these in your Bible. Um, but again, nothing all that substantial rides on any of these words or verses that are in question. So while 5,900 manuscripts does lend itself to a lot of discrepancies, that large number also serves as a check and balance. The more manuscripts we have to compare, the more confidence we have that the variants can be caught and corrected. 
Everyone follow me so far? All right. I think the best way to illustrate both the problem and the solution is to propose the following scenario. So let's go back, if you would, with me to the 1950s, um, before the Internet, before computers, before copying machines and so on, the golden age where the common person used a pen and paper. All right? And at every family reunion in late June, Aunt Mildred would make her famous rhubarb custard pie. And back then, everybody had an Aunt Mildred. I'm from the 50s, and I had an Aunt Mildred. But she didn't make rhubarb custard pie. So this was a long-standing tradition. It goes back decades, as long as people could remember. The pie won awards at county fair. It was the talk of town. Nobody could come close to duplicating it. It was a secret recipe that she kept all to herself, all in her head. She never wrote it down. And as she aged into her late 80s, her daughters convinced her to share the recipe with them. And she did. And so there around her kitchen table, she wrote it out on a scrap piece of paper, and each of her six daughters hand-copied it for their own use. Over the next months, over the next weeks, months, and years, each of these daughters shared the recipe with their cousins and friends and so on, as people asked, and with their own daughters. And many who got the recipe also passed it on to others yet. Probably 60 or more copies were out there, all of which were copies of copies, handwritten copies of this recipe. Now, Mildred didn't eat it herself, so she tossed away her original. Now, jump ahead to around 70 years later, to 2022, a distant family member who happened to hear about Mildred's pie uh, was eager to find the recipe for it. And so she reached out to family members and even Facebook asking if anybody happened to have it. And she got several responses, even from a couple people she didn't even know. No less than 20 surviving copies were rounded up. And she spread them out on the kitchen table, and she noticed some differences. However, of the 20, half of them were exactly the same. No variations. Of the remaining 10, five had misspelled words. Another one had an inverted phrase, mix, then chop, rather than chop, then mix. One had an extra ingredient that wasn't found in any of the others. And one also had some other wording that wasn't exact either, saying, let cool overnight, while all the others said, let cool until morning. And another copy was incomplete, as though the bottom had been accidentally torn off and lost. And all of them said to preheat the oven but two of them added the detail 400 degrees. So here's the question. You can see where I'm headed with this. Do you think Aunt Mildred's recipe could be accurately reconstructed from those 20 copies, knowing that her original recipe is nowhere to be found, knowing that there are a number of differences with these copies? Again, 10 are identical. Five have misspelled words. One has an inverted phrase. One has an added ingredient. Two of them provide an, an additional detail about pre, preheating the oven. And one is incomplete, missing the last lines at the bottom. Could we reconstruct that recipe? Absolutely. Sure we could. And we would have confidence that the pie we made from that recipe that we reconstructed would be Aunt Mildred's pie. Right? News Testament scholars. This gives me goosebumps. I know. Three-fourths of you might be, oh, this is so boring. But listen to me. This gives me goosebumps. The next thing I'm going to say. 
New Testament scholars are confident as well. Scholars are 100% confident that 99.5% of the New Testament has been accurately reconstructed. And unlike Mildred's pie recipe of only 20 copies, the New Testament enjoys a treasure chest of 5,900 copies to work from. And again, of the part that makes up the less than 1%, no significant doctrine of the Christian faith is affected. Now, we need to be very clear about this. We don't want to overstate the case. This does not prove that the New Testament is true or that it is God's word or that it has authority over our lives and so on. Those are different questions that we take up elsewhere. What it does say, however, is this. We have a great deal of confidence in knowing what the New Testament authors actually wrote. We can trust the integrity of the text. Okay, everyone follow me so far? All right. Reconstructing Mildred's recipe involves a discipline known as textual criticism. You probably have heard that word. This is the science of studying and comparing handwritten copies so as to reconstruct what the original document actually said. It is what we use to reconstruct the wording of any ancient literature, Homer, Plato, Josephus, so on, including the New Testament. Generally speaking, the more copies one has and the earlier the copies, the more confidence there is in that reconstruction. And, again, we have a lot of copies, and a number of them are very, very early. So before we go any further, let's pause to familiarize ourselves with some important terms that pertain to the subject. Like I said, this is going to be like a classroom today. So um, think of it in that light. We'll start with the word manuscript. I've been using it quite a bit, so let's actually define it. The term comes from manually scripting. Right. So technically, a manuscript is a handwritten document, just simply that, as opposed to something published by a printing press. Those who manually uh, write out copies, script out copies professionally, they are called scribes. And in the footnotes of your Bible, you'll often see the word uh, abbreviated of manuscript with the letters MS or MSS for plural. If you've ever seen that in your footnotes. And speaking of the printing press, which put all the scribes out of work almost overnight, who invented it again? Gutenberg, okay, around 1440 to around 1450. Another important word is autograph. Now, here, don't think of a rock star signing his guitar. Um, we're thinking something different. This would be the original handwritten document, the one penned by the author himself. In our case, we'd be thinking of men like Matthew and John and Paul, Luke, Peter, and so on. Again, we do not have any of these, and that is probably a good thing, given how superstitious many Christians can be, because such documents, can you imagine what we'd be doing? You know, people would be trying to worship them, crowds would flock to them, thinking that if they could just touch them, they would be healed. There would be no end of the efforts to break in into museums and libraries trying to steal them. They'd be sold on the black market for millions of dollars. It cost a fortune to protect them and to insure them, and on and on and on. So it's probably a good thing that they've all been lost. <laughs> the next word is papyrus, which refers to a kind of... One ahead. Okay. Forget that you saw the word parchment up there. It's, it's papyrus. It was a picture. Oh, I'm going to actually donate a projector that you guys can use. 
I'll take, I'll bring it with me each year. I'll give it to you, but you can only use it when I come. All right. The next word is papyrus. You've heard of this. This is, refers to a kind of paper, if you will, that was used in the earliest manuscripts. Paper really isn't the right word, but it's, it's close. Papyrus was a tall water plant. Its leaves were thin. It could be pressed together to form a page on which to write. So far, um, we have 130 of these. Early fragments and pages of the New Testament books written on this kind of ancient paper. Now, we don't possess any complete copies of the New Testament on papyrus, but what we do have is very valuable because they're considered to be very, very early, close to the time of the original um, autographs. This is a picture of probably the most popular and intriguing fragment on papyrus that we have. It's called P52. It's dated around 125 A.D. This would be very early. It's roughly the size of a business card, and it consists of seven lines from the 18th chapter of John. And this is a page from P46, a collection of Paul's letters. It dates to about the same time period. So here's an interesting tidbit. If you ever get asked this question on Jeopardy and you go on TV, the word Bible comes from the word comes from the Greek word for books, which itself is the word used for the papyrus plant. All right. Now, because of its durability, parchment eventually replaced papyrus. Um, parchment is simply a treated type of leather prepared for the purpose of writing on it. Parchment was actually used in New Testament times, but it was very um, expensive then, but it became more affordable later on. Paper itself, as we know it, from trees, didn't come on the scene until about the time of the printing press. All right. Codex, instead of a continuous scroll, a codex consists of individual pages that are bound together. We call it a codex instead of a book because the pages are manuscripts. They're handwritten. The pages could consist of either papyrus or parchment. In contrast, books consist of paper copies made on a printing press. This is a picture of one that is extremely popular in textual criticism circles. It is named Codex Sinaiticus, and it was written in the middle of the 4th century, and it is the earliest complete copy of the Christian New Testament. And this leads us now, we're going to get real technical here. This leads us to unshields and minuscules. Well, uh, these are two types of writing found in ancient uh, manuscripts. We'll start with unshields. This is what unshields look like. They're large, bold, uppercase letters, no spaces between words, no punctuation. This is a style used when the New Testament itself was written. Uh, so think of the New Testament writers as how they did it. And this style was continued to be used uh, until about the 7th century. No spacing, no punctuation, and we can see why there might be some errors. But again, such errors were easy to catch and correct. And we could actually illustrate it this way in our English language. Is it, he is nowhere, or is it, he is now here? Well, how would we come to the answer to that? The context. We just simply read the context and whatever makes sense in, in, the, in the sentence. Okay. This eventually gave way to a style of writing called minuscules. Don't you love these words? You're going to use this next week. <laughs> the letters here are smaller. They're lowercase. They're somewhat cursive, which allowed the scribe to write a lot faster. 
The question might be, if it's more efficient, why didn't they write this way sooner? And the answer is simple. Up until then, parchment was rougher, difficult to write on, thus large, bold letters. Only later, during some revolution in parchment technology, did they find a way to treat the leather so as to make it smoother so that they could write on it right fast. All right? Isn't it amazing what you can learn here on Sunday morning? But faster writing can make one a little more careless, but the spacing between the words, of course, would be a big help in preventing other errors. The minuscule script was pretty much the standard from the 8th century right up until the time of the printing press. So, why did I show you all this? Right? This becomes a way to assign an initial rough date to a manuscript that might be discovered. If the paper was papyrus, then scholars would place it very early, probably before the year 300. If it were parchment, written with large bold letters, unshields, this would place it roughly between 300 and 600. If it were smaller, cursive, lowercase letters, uh, this would date it between 600 and 1400. And generally speaking, the earlier the manuscript, the higher the confidence of its accuracy. All right, see how it all connects together here? If one of the copies of Aunt Mildred's recipe was written on the back of a 1958 calendar, we would naturally give it more weight than the one written on the back of a packing slip from Amazon. Correct? It's just that simple. So again, all of this is part of textual criticism. Um, Where did the manuscript come from? How old is it? Is it reliable? Is it related to other manuscripts? How does it compare? And then based on those answers, the ultimate question, what contribution does this manuscript itself that's just been discovered can make to reconstructing what the autograph itself said? All right. Let's now put everything in perspective by comparing the New Testament to other literature of the ancient world. Because this is not in a vacuum. We need to see what else is going on out in real life. Now, the numbers here can change as new discoveries are made, but these figures are pretty much current. When I, and I, when I refer to number of surviving manuscripts, this would again be either complete copies or partial copies. So let's take the first century Jewish historian, Josephus. We've all heard of him. I'm on the right track. Okay. His noteworthy work, The Jewish War, survives in only nine manuscripts. The earliest copy that we know of goes back to the 5th century, 400 years after he composed it. A Roman historian named Tacitus wrote the Annals of Imperial Rome, which is one of our main sources for the history of Rome, and it survives in partial form in only 31 manuscripts. And the gap between the time he composed it and the earliest copies is between 750 and 950 years. Pliny the Elder, a Roman army commander, wrote Natural History. 200 manuscripts have been found, the time gap, at least 400 years. Titus Livius also wrote a history of Rome, 150 manuscripts, time gap, 400 years. Herodia, Herod. I practiced this over and over on the way here. Herodotus of the 5th century is often called the father of history. Do I have him up? I don't want to have to say the name again. 109 manuscripts, time gap a whopping 1,350 years. There are 250 manuscripts of Caesar's work, The Gallic Wars. The gap between the time the original was composed to the time the earliest surviving copy was written, 950 years. 
We have 210 manuscripts of Plato's works. Time gap, 1,300 years. Homer's Iliad has the most impressive manuscript evidence for any secular work with about 1,800 copies. The gap between the time Homer wrote it and the earliest known copy is 400 years. No scholar doubts the reconstruction of Iliad, yet the New Testament has more than three times as many manuscripts. And as you can see, the time gap is much less. Most of our knowledge of ancient history comes from the documents I just referred to. But yet none of them compare to the New Testament when it comes to confidence of integrity. Far more manuscripts available, far closer in time to the original composition to the earliest surviving copy. So the issue here isn't the time gap between the autograph itself and us. The issue is the time gap between the autograph and its earliest surviving copies. Now, many of you are familiar with Greg Kokel. How many know of Greg Kokel? For the name, all right, great. Here's what he said about all of this. If we reject the authenticity of the New Testament on textual grounds, we'd also have to reject every work of antiquity prior to 1000 A.D., since there is less evidence for their authenticity than for the New Testament. That's well said. And just about anything that you might read on this subject, this will be the conclusion that will be that you will come to, that the author will make. He might say it differently, but this particular point will be pressed. When compared to other ancient literature, the New Testament gets the highest mark of confidence. Indeed, the evidence in the New Testament is really nothing less than amazing. It is also worth noting that this collection of 5,900 Greek manuscripts includes 40 very early, very, very early partial manuscripts of the New Testament, dated from the late first century to the early part of the third century. And these range from small fragments, part of the page, to even a collection of several books. And there is enough in just those very, very early manuscripts to reconstruct the original text of the New Testament. That's pretty amazing. Now, in addition to, if you're not already given great reassurance, which hopefully you have, this will boost it even more. In addition to the 5,900 complete or partial Greek manuscripts in the New Testament, we also have over 10,000 Latin manuscripts, early copies translated from the Greek. And Latin, of course, was the language of the Western Empire where Christianity enjoyed most of its early growth and expansion. 10,000 Latin manuscripts. And over 9,300 more manuscripts in other languages from the ancient Mid-Eastern world. Coptic, Ethiopic, uh, Ethiopic, Armenian, Slavic, and so on. And that raises the total from 5,900 to over 25,000, all before the printing press. And these are just the ones that we have found so far. Now, certainly the 5,900 that are in Greek are considered the most valuable, but the others are a treasure trove as well, and very useful for cross-checking. We also have secondary sources that are quite helpful, and one would be the writings of the church fathers. These are instructional books written by church leaders who led the church after the deaths of the apostles. Scholars have noted that if no copies whatsoever of the New Testament had ever survived, the quotes of the New Testament found in the writings of just these men would be sufficient alone to reconstruct practically the entire New Testament. And similar to this would be church service books that have survived. These are called lexicons and church catechisms and the like. 
Surviving manuscripts of these often contain citations of the, large, of the New Testament, sometimes just large sections of Scripture. And as you can see, these are very valuable as well. So when you put it all together, there's no shortage of material available for cross-checking. Blank. All right, so let's now uh, get an idea of the whole process. Um, just kind of a flyover of the time that a New Testament book was written all the way to our English. I'm going to buy you a new remote, too. This thing keeps falling apart on me. Why don't I just buy you a whole new church? <laughs> all right. Uh, from the time the New Testament book was written all the way to our modern English day Bibles. How many are still with me? How many have, are now are fall asleep? If you're asleep and can raise your hand, go ahead. In the earliest period, we simply had individual letters and books. You have to kind of think along those lines, and they were circulating around. For instance, we can assume that when the Ephesians received Paul's letter to them, someone in that church made copies of that letter. A couple copies for the church, um, for members to borrow and read, a few copies for those members who could afford to have them copied, and some copies to be passed on to other churches in the region. And copies would be made of those copies and circulated as opportunities would arise. And this sort of thing went on with all the letters and books, repeating throughout the following generations. And as to be expected, churches and even people started to assemble collections of these. And at some point, probably in the mid-2nd century, these collections would be copied and circulated as a set. Like the four Gospels would be a set. They'd be copied and circulated as a set. Or the letters of Paul, as I said, or the letters of Peter, or all the writings of John. And eventually, these you can see where this is going. These different sets or collections would be bundled together and become a whole set, what we know of as the New Testament. And sometimes these collections included other Christian, other early Christian writings as well. And as to be expected, this, you know, as the gospel spread throughout the ancient world. Many of, the, of these New Testaments were translated into other languages because it was, the gospel was spreading fast and it was spreading far. Now, in the second and third centuries, many of the scriptures were unfortunately confiscated and destroyed. We've lost a lot. Uh, this took place during the great persecutions under certain Roman emperors. But that simply compelled them to copy and circulate even more. You know, they were the first Bible smugglers. And, you know, given how the Bible was condemned to be destroyed, Christians were faithful to make a lot of them. So to use the analogy, whenever we get a Democrat president, everybody goes out and buys ammo because they think they're not going to be able to get any more. Right. It'd be similar to that. As we move into the fourth century, Christianity is now legalized. And for reasons both good and bad, it became more institutionalized. One thing that was good was that the scriptures could now be copied professionally, ensuring more accuracy and precision. And a popular method would be to have a trained reader carefully read out loud one sentence at a time, while eight or nine professional scribes would write it out, whether in Greek or in another language, like in Latin. And obviously errors were made, even in the best of conditions, and often those errors would be caught and fixed when that copy itself would be copied. Certain cities like Constantinople and Alexandria, they developed um, their own standard text 
that they used to make copies from, and a lot of work went into making sure that those uh, texts, those particular documents were clean. A lot of work was put in to make sure that the known flaws were corrected, that could be copied from faithfully, and they knew what kind of mistakes to look for. You know, most were very minor, like spelling errors and mix-ups with abbreviations and numbers getting turned around. These were easy to spot and fix, no big deal. The kinds of errors that they were looking for could actually be divided up into five different categories. A popular one is referred to as errors of the eye, mistakes made by failing, failing to see a word or a verse correctly. Sometimes letters or words or even a whole line would be skipped over during the copying process. Or the opposite, sometimes there's accidental uh, repetitions. And then there are the occasional mishap of accidentally reversing two words or mixing up two letters. And numbers, you probably have seen this in your footnote, in your footnotes, is the mark of the B666 or 616. Or did Jesus say forgive 77 times or 7 times 7 or 7 times 77? These sorts of things. Similar to this are errors of the ear. When someone is reading the text, a scribe might not hear it correctly. The Greek word for rope and the Greek word for camel sound almost identical. And this would explain why some ancient manuscripts have Jesus saying in Matthew 19, it is easier for a rope to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when you think about it, rope seems to work better for the illustration than camel. I mean, where in the world did the idea come from of trying to push a camel to the eye of a needle? And so it's quite reasonable to see how a scribe would just assume he had heard the word rope. And then we have errors of memory, what we could attribute to brain conditioning. And there are not many of these, but they do occur. And I'll illustrate it with a simple experiment. Fill in the blank for me. For the fruit of the blank consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. For the fruit of the spirit. But actually, um, what I quoted wasn't Galatians 5, but from Ephesians 5, and it is fruit of the light. All right? So our brains are conditioned to think fruit of the spirit because of that popular verse in Galatians. And this is true of scribes as well. Even though a scribe might have heard the reader say fruit of the light, he may have accidentally written fruit of the spirit instead, because his brain just had him do that. But like other mistakes, these sorts of things were discovered and corrected. Then there are errors of judgment. Some manuscripts had additional notes in the margins at the top, the bottom, the sides, that sort of thing. If the scribe wasn't careful, these notes could end up being copied into the text and then passed on to the next generation of copies. In Mark 9, Jesus cast a demon out of a boy. The disciples had tried but failed, and so they asked Jesus why they failed. And he answered them, this can only come out by prayer, but others say prayer and fasting. So it's quite possible that the words and fasting may have originally been in a note in the margin. And it's very likely that the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, was a note in the margin that eventually found its way in the text. All right. Um, and then there are also errors in writing. If the handwriting style of the scribe at certain points is less than precise, this could cause problems for other scribes that copied from the manuscript, like some of our English letters, Greek letters, can look quite similar. But again, these are easy to spot and find and correct. And along with innocent mistakes, there are also situations where changes took place intentionally, but we can be assured that nothing in sinister was going on with any of them. 
Some were the result of updating the text to the newer standards of the time of grammar and spelling because all languages evolved, but the attempt did not, um, you know, the attempt did result in differences. I don't know we called them mistakes, but they were variants. Um, other examples include attempts to harmonize gospel accounts, clarify doctrinal statements, try to correct historical or factual details that did not need to be corrected, and so on. Um, and the more substantial ones are noted in the footnotes of your Bible. And so the encouraging thing in all of this is that, again, scholars have been able to reconstruct at least 99.5% of the original New Testament, and of the less than 1% the remaining question, no significant doctrine is affected. Nothing of any weight rises on falls in how that verse or word is to be rendered. And if what is in the text itself is incorrect, then the footnote will be correct. But the correction is there in one or the other. An obvious question is, when manuscripts are compared and a difference is found, how is it decided which rendering should be used? Because, again, it may just sound like all this was just haphazard, but there was a whole process. We're not going to take time to deal with this in great detail, but the process looks something like this. And the higher up on the list, the more weight um, that factor is given. The older manuscript is preferred over the later one. The more difficult reading is preferred over a smoother one, because it's assumed that the scribe tried to make things smoother, um, that he... uh, did that on his own. The shorter reading is preferred over a longer one because it's assumed that the scribe added something to help explain what was written. You know, Aunt Mildred said, preheat the oven. But years later, her niece added to 400 degrees. Uh, The reading with the widest geographical support is another one. For instance, only if, for instance, only the copies from Alexandria had the word amen at the end of a prayer, and none of the other copies from everywhere else had it, then we would assume that the amen was something that had been accidentally added in that region and um, copied there. Uh, number five, the reading that most conforms to the style of the author. That's pretty self-explanatory. And number six, the reading that doesn't reflect the doctrinal bias. And this, again, assumes that a scribe tried to fix something that he thought needed to be clarified. So if we had time, we could look at examples of these, but, um, but we won't take time to do that now. Uh, next year, I'll come down. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so uh, this brings us now to those pages of your Bible that you probably have never read, and that's the preface. Um, but it is relevant because it talks a lot about this and gives us the name of the Greek text that was used for the translation itself. And the popular translations that probably most of you use here that we use today overall, the NIV, the ESV, the NLT, the CSV, the NASV, all base their translations on what is called a critical text that was published by the United Bible Society. The preface in your Bible probably refers to it as the 27th or 28th edition of the Nestle Alien text, and is constantly being revised and updated as more manuscripts are discovered and made available. And this particular text has become a standard. It's regarded as representing the latest and the best in textual scholarship. And it takes into account all that is available, the 5,900 surviving Greek manuscripts, the 10,000 Latin ones, the 9,300 in other languages, the New Testament citations and the writings of the church fathers, and all the rest that is available from the ancient world. Now, in comparison, the King James, translated 400 years ago, used something called the received text. 
um, which only drew from a small number of manuscripts, only seven manuscripts, and none of them had been written earlier than the 12th century. This received text was compiled by a man named Erasmus over a period of about eight years, which he finished in 1519. However, while we're on the subject, this doesn't mean that the manuscripts behind the King James are unreliable. Not at all. The remarkable thing here is that except for the type of English that is being used, the content between the King James and modern translations is strikingly similar. There are differences, but it's strikingly similar. And this testifies to just how much all of these ancient manuscripts manuscripts agree, you know. There are differences, but nothing major. So imagine, again, reconstructing Aunt Mildred's recipe and then 30 years later coming across another hundred copies of it and finding that after comparing them, you end up with basically the same recipe. The confidence level for that recipe that you had arrived at beforehand would now be even higher. And that's exactly what we have with the New Testament. All right. Still tracking with me? I only got 40 more minutes. We're almost winding up here. Is it blank? Okay. One minute away from the altar call. So, you'd be surprised the flocks of people that come afterwards on a message like this to get saved. All right. Do not let anyone get away with saying that we don't have a clue on what the original authors wrote or that the New Testament documents can't be trusted. You need to, I mean, your first instinct is just going to hit them in the face, but you don't want to do that. You just want to respond very kindly and say something like what Greg Kokel said. If we reject the authenticity of the New Testament on textual grounds, we'd also have to reject every word of antiquity before 1000 A.D., since there is far less evidence for their integrity than for the New Testament. You and I, everybody in this room, we can read, study, meditate on, teach, enjoy, and apply the Scriptures, trust the Scriptures, knowing that we don't have to be unduly concerned about the integrity of the text. Amen? The words of David, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm. All of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, much more than gold. And uh, they are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. May God bless his holy, infallible, and life-giving word. Amen.